good to see you guys. Most of you. No, I'm teasing all of you. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, you're catching us in a rather long series of messages that you can jump in at any given time on identifying who God is. It's kind of with a, the thing we thought we'd maybe spend a couple messages on it, but we've been in here just because the revelation of understanding who God is in your life is just so transformational. And so it's found all these different rabbit trails and permutations. And so uh, if you are encouraged by what we hear tonight, we've got like weeks of this stuff on different angles and parts and, part, parts and places. And um, we're really zeroing in on who God is and not just God is king, not him as Lord, but him as Abba, which means daddy. And when you become a father like that, that word has brand new meaning. And so we get to understand proper theology of who God is by actually understanding that identity of who he is as Abba. And last week we took approach of, or two weeks ago, I guess, we uh, addressed the popular Christian virtue of fear of the Lord. This thing that we like lift up high, fear the Lord, it's just like, great virtue that we strive for. And basically, we looked at how we love the grace of God because it gets you into the kingdom. But then we use fear of the Lord to keep you in line. We want you to be saved. Like, you're totally forgiven. Come as you are. And once you get saved, you're in the kingdom. It's like, no, better stay straight. (laughs) And we teach fear of the Lord. We cultivate fear of the Lord because we want people to be deterred from sinning. And instead of growing people in a love-based relationship with God that protects their life and their relationship with God by living righteously, instead of living in a place of protection or the most valuable relationship in existence, we cultivate a fear-based relationship with people, with their creator. And when we do this, what we do is we motivate Christians out of fear out of failure and of guilt and shame. And every single time we do that, we insert a little bit more distance between their hearts and the heart of God. And if you do that enough, you find yourself with a heart that's completely cold to God. We looked at 1 John 4, 1, that basically talked about how there is no fear in God and perfect love casts out fear and the conclusion that you cannot authentically love someone you fear. As we looked at how the punishment of God as a believer is a non-existent thing, but many of us still believe that while we're saved and we get brought into the kingdom forgiven, that there's actually hell to pay if we mess up as a believer. And that God is still in the business of punishing for sin. Now, we don't explicitly say that God punishes us, so we don't want to say that, but we use different terminology and language for the same thing. You say, well, God's disciplining me. And we can have all sorts of stories and circumstances how God has disciplined us through heartbreak, through calamity, through misfortune, through bankruptcy, through flat tires, that God has disciplined me for my disobedience. The problem is that the scriptures seem to show a little loophole in this one truth, that you believe that God doesn't punish you, but we have this little loophole called discipline that's a little scary. It's Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Last time I kind of left you on a cliffhanger on this. Do you know what it means to scourge someone? That Jesus was scourged. It's this weapon that's used called a flagrum that has 
three leather straps on it. And on the ends of it are zinc and bronze and sometimes pieces of glass. And it's this, this, this weapon used to torture criminals. And it's specifically designed to take off the flesh from the backs of those who you whip. And you remember that Jesus was, was holding on and they, they, the, the Jews would, would whip you 40 times minus one in a scourge. Why 40 times minus one? Because 40 times was considered the death penalty. Literally bringing you an inch within your life. And so when the scriptures say that the Lord scourges every son whom he loves, like that should bother you. Does that bother anybody else here? Well, it should because it actually means you have a brain. When you read that, you should be like, that's a little disturbing. Like that shouldn't sit right with me. But sometimes we have a, a challenge where you just say, oh, well, it's in the Bible. And if you're having a challenge with that, it just means that you're having a hard time reconciling a good God with an evil whip. And every Bible commentator I have found seems to reaffirm this notion that God scourges his children. And I credit Paul Ellis, one of my uh, authors I just love and follow, to point this out, but um, in redeeming this passage, but here's just one commentary. One. Scourges means literally to flog or to scourge and entails any suffering which God ordains. God's chastisement includes not only his whipping us, so to speak, for specific transgressions, but also the entire range of trials and tribulations which he providentially ordains and which he uh, will work to mortify sin and nurture faith, ultimately serving to conform us to the image of his Son. Notice that scourges is in the present tense, which indicates that this is not a one-time event, but can be expected in the lives of those who are truly God's spiritual children. Yikes. That doesn't bother you. That I wonder if there's something wrong. That bothers me. And any time that we find a passage like this that doesn't line up to what a daddy, father, God's heart looks like, we have to inquire of it. So let me break down this passage for you. I left you on the cliffhanger last time. I want to show it to you in full context. This is Hebrews 12, 4 and 6. It says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this is the passage in full context. Who wants to play some Bible trivia? Fun game? What do you notice about this passage? When you look at it, does anything like stand out as you look at that? Anybody bold enough? Is it a quote? It's all caps. Well, in the Bible, when you see this in all caps, it actually means it's quoting another passage. It even shows it to you there. It says, have you forgotten? Meaning that this is a quote of another passage in the Bible. It's actually a quote of Proverbs 3, 11, 12. Let me read it to you. It says, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father, the son in whom he delights. Did you hear any keyword missing from that passage? Scourge, it's missing. Here we have in Hebrews 12, the author, 
who is encouraging the young Christians and decides to quote Proverbs 3. But here's the problem. There's something fishy going on. To better illustrate what's going on, let me put two passages side by side. The original is going to be on the left, and the Hebrew copied version on the right. As you see, the first three lines are faithfully and accurately copied from end to end until you reach the last line, in which you have in Proverbs, even as a father the son whom he delights, and in Hebrews, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if someone's trying to quote someone and gets it wrong, we don't adopt the new quotes. We don't like, ah, it's close enough. We actually take the original what they said. It's undeniable that the author of Hebrews is quoting Proverbs 3. We had something go wrong. Now, before you get all concerned about the legitimacy of the Bible, there are many reasons why this could have happened. There's several. I actually like, wrote down five theories that are in this. But I'm going to stop, and, and you can ask me later. I'll tell you. But here's one key thing, is that you have the author of Hebrews who knows Hebrew and Greek, who's writing a, a letter in Greek to other Jews who know Hebrew, writing it in Greek, quoting Proverbs, which is in Hebrew, translating it in Greek. If that confuses you, it should. It's someone who's multilingual and they're quoting multiple languages back and forth. Here's the thing, is that some of the original manuscripts in Proverbs have a different word there that sometimes and oftentimes means to inquire into. And it's thought that maybe the author of Hebrews took the, thought, uh, the, the word that means to inquire into, but in Greek, when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek, it actually can sometimes mean scourge. Interesting. Now, when I first read that, I was like, the father scourges his son. Like, that's awful. That's awful. There's a funny thing about the word awful. What does the word awful mean? Terrible, bad, right? But ironically, the original meaning means to be filled with awe, awe and wonder. So someone's asked me, what was it like to see your bride walking down the aisle of your wedding day? And you're like, it was awful. <laughs> and I would be literally using the truest term of the word. I'd have the truest meaning, but we don't understand that word anymore. And you'd be like mortified, like, how dare you? Like, you don't deserve that woman, which might be true on a different level, but... The same can be said for the word scourge, is that there are different words in different times, especially translated into different passages that can take on different meaning. But the bottom line here is that you can take heart that God does not scourge you or his son. A father that whips and scourges his son goes to prison. He is taken away from his son. Do you understand that? Like, we, we put people in jail for this kind of stuff. But when we read it for theology and we project it upon God, we all of a sudden give our theology a pass. And you don't need to try and reconcile a bad whip with a good God because it's not what it's saying. Few. A good father does not whip his son and scourge his son. But it brings up a good question. What actually is discipline in the kingdom? 
Because even though that the phrase, the word got misinterpreted, even though it got copied wrong, some people believe like the scribes who are copying these letters back and forth like they missed it. There's like spelling errors in the Bible, if you can believe it. So I don't put a past them to accidentally misquote Proverbs. I'm okay with that. I hope you guys are too. But it brings up a good question. Like what does it actually mean for God, the Abba Father, to discipline his children? Because still, even in Proverbs, no matter where you get, a, a father who loves his son disciplines his son. So what does that mean? Well, if you caught what the author of Hebrews was saying, the context was sin. The context was struggle. The co- like, we don't know what that church wrote to the author, but we know that they are addressing failure. We know that the Jews that were new believers, the, the Hebrews that they're writing to, we knew that they were struggling with sin because it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And then it goes on to talk about discipline. So we have this context of sin, failure, and then we have the instruction of discipline. Are you guys with me? And so hallelujah, a good father is concerned when their son or daughter struggles. Some people like have a, a problem with the message of grace because they think that it's like God doesn't care about sin, doesn't care about all these things. I'm not saying that at all. But hallelujah, that a good father knows and takes concern when his children get into a mess. But the author of Hebrews says that you've not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. Now, this is actually a joke because this is actually referring to Jesus saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? So he's making a reference here. He's like, you're still struggling and I think you still have hands. So there's probably some more you can do if you really want to root this thing out. Find a little Bible humor in there. But what I believe is happening here, A, that comment is basically a a comment on your willingness. How far do you really concern yourself about rooting out your struggle? But what's happening here is I believe these new Christians are actually unhappy with what they experience when they sin as a believer. What I think is happening is that they're redeemed, they're saved, and now sin is like not kind of fun anymore. Or maybe they're struggling with, like, they're experiencing something that is off, and they're, like, trying to understand it. Why do I feel off now? The things that were so much fun, like, six weeks ago, are not as fun anymore. That they're transformed people, but now they have the living God living inside them, and they are still subjecting themselves to sin. It's a different experience before. Maybe they're trying to live a double life and it's just not working out as good. Like, have any tips to how to live a double life? You know, I don't know what's going on, but the point is that you have believers and they struggle and they're asking, how do I fix this? What is happening to me? And so the author is telling you that when you experience this experience, it's actually the discipline of God. We're going to talk about what that means. But have you ever, like, had an experience you said to yourself, why did I do that? I had one about three weeks ago. We took our kids to Disneyland for the first time, and it's the last night. We're in Disneyland Park, and I have a business partner who's down Orange County. We're like, hey, come up and like, let's have tacos and stuff. And so we get to the restaurant at like five. And he's like only coming like 10 minutes away, but on the LA freeways, it takes him two hours almost to get there. 
It's probably about an hour and a half. But in the course of that hour and a half, not only do we have kids, but I have plowed through about three buckets of chips and salsa. So he gets there. I'm full. He's like, hey, let's order food. So naturally, I have this thing for burritos. And despite saying this little voice saying, I think you're full, I think you're full enough, I'm like, super burrito, deep fried, beans and rice. Come on. Gets there, two bites. I'm like, this little voice said, you've had enough. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised to always clear my plate. It stresses me out to see food on my plate. Like I was out to dinner last night, and there's like one little piece of leg, and I'm like, oh, get it out of there. You know, I just like enjoy a clear plate. So I'm totally full for like an hour already, and I have this mega burrito, and I just have this like, you gotta clear your plate. So even the little voice said, stop right there, I finished it all. But then it's our last night at Disneyland. It's like 9.30, we're like, we got like 30 more minutes. Let's take the kids on some rides. So I go naturally to the teacup ride. Whee! I'm taking like video, photo. And at this point, the voice is like saying, really? I give up. Really? The teacup ride. Now I'm like... I don't know about you, but there's some people who, like, when you have, like, the feeling you got to barf, like, you just got to get it out. You're just like, I just need to do it right now. I don't even feel that bad, but I'm just going to do it just in case. I'm the opposite. Like, I'm going to, like, I, like, will fight it to the bitter end. So I have a good willpower, so I'm like, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to sleep it off. Like, three hours later, I wake up in a cold sweat, mouse, like, I'm like, oh, man, fight it, fight it, fight it. Little voice is like, what did you do? And I'm just like sitting there like, oh, no. And a few minutes later, I'm like head down in the toilet, and that little voice is like, I was trying to warn you. It's like, you know, when, when you see an exit coming up, it's like giving you like five miles, three miles, two miles, one mile, half mile, quarter mile. I'm just like went by all those exits on my nights. And that's the perfect illustration of the discipline of the Lord. Not the vomiting part. (laughs) But there's two aspects to the discipline of the Lord that are just game-changing. And this is the first one, is that the discipline of the Lord comes through His voice. The discipline of the Lord doesn't come through a whip, not through a flagrum, not through scourging, not through flat tires. It comes from His voice. What does that really mean? It means that God's discipline is relational. God's discipline is relational. And God disciplines us through relationship. Never forget the promises of your salvation, that God reconciled you to himself so that you could have relationship with him. He gave you the mind of Christ. He made his dwelling reside inside of you. And he gave you his spirit. And he enabled you to hear his voice. Amen? Amazing truth to who we are in Christ. John 8, 47, whoever belongs to him hears what God says. You are designed and wired to hear from God. So why would God choose to discipline you in any other way than besides the voice he's given you access to hear? 
What does the voice of God say if it's not incorporating discipline? Talking about the weather? Like he gave you his voice so that you could hear and interact with him. Yes, to be affirmed, but also to communicate with you when you stumble and you, you struggle. And so what I'm saying is that the most powerful instrument that God can ever use to reach you about your failure is not through misfortune, it's not through pain, it's not through suffering, trials, and tribulations, actually his voice. Deuteronomy 4 even tells us the same. It says, out of the heavens, he lets you hear his voice to discipline you. That on earth, he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. In the new covenant, God disciplines through relationship, period. End of story. It's because how you were made. I don't care what happened in the Old Testament. They weren't brand new creations, the living presence of God. They weren't hearing God's voice. In the new covenant and the new creation that you are, God disciplines you through relationship. And specifically, that we need to break this association that our unfortunate circumstances, our pain, our calamity is God's discipline in your life. See, many of us, we look at the wrong things that go on in life and we begin to like, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Like, what did I do? Like, God is making a point. Do you ever, like, have people have misfortune? Like, God, what are you trying to say? And, and they, they try to get an explanation for why this happens. We have all sorts of sayings. Everything happens for a reason, right? We have all these different cliches. I won't get started on that because we'll be here for, like, another 40 hours. But we have all these things. We have situations in that we, situations that have pain, trials, and we ask God, Why? What are you trying to show me, and what did I do wrong? Like, for me, I was convinced that every high school breakup was because of some sin I had. I was assured of every, you know, challenge I had was traced to some misfortune, some act of disobedience I had. And I had this crazy debilitating fear that when I'd struggle, when I'd fail, when I'd fall short, it was just a little time bomb somewhere hidden off in my life that was going to go off at some unknown time to be the discipline in my life for how I disobeyed that's how a lot of our theology like it sounds crazy to me in this kind of phase of my life but that's actually pretty consistent with a, a, what a lot of people believe about how God works now let me put that in the natural okay I have two kids so let's say my daughter disobeys and hurts my son now when we're at Disneyland we got Scarlett this Ariel, she loves Ariel. Ariel in the wedding dress with like the veil. She held the box and she's like, oh, for like hours. Loved the box with Ariel in it. Now let's say she takes a toy and like stabs my two-year-old son. Disobeys. She would never do that. But let's just say she disobeyed. Here's what your theology about what we believe about God sending a later punishment for us would be. It would be not, I would not talk to my daughter. I would not address her relationally. I would wait to a random time. And then later, maybe in the middle of the night, I'd walk into her bedroom, sneak in while she's asleep, pry that little princess out of her arms as she's sleeping, little Ariel, little wedding dress on, and just twist the head off. Set it back on, tiptoe back out. 
And then expect her brother to explain that everything happens for a reason and probably God is disciplining you for something. Awful, isn't it? It's awful. You want to put me in jail right now for even telling you a crazy fictitious story like that. But that's really our theology, is it not? Is our theology all that different than that scenario where we have these un known time bombs of punishment coming to us for how we behave and disobey. I feel like I need to redeem you guys. I'm sorry about that story. (laughs) But think about it. God sent his son to die on the cross so that he would have relationship with you. That's the whole point. He died on the cross so he would have relationship with you. So any form of discipline that's outside of relationship is inferior. When we punish people outside of relationship, we lose the relationship. In order for God to preserve relationship with you, his discipline always comes through relationship. Relationship with you is the most important thing in all of existence to him. And so he's not going to violate relationship with you in order to discipline you. God's not disciplining anybody with disease, trials, bankruptcy, tribulations, canker sores. Any other form of discipline that happens outside his voice is actually inferior. So then back to the Hebrews, right? Here they are, they're... They're experiencing this experience after sin, and they're experiencing the discipline of God that comes through his voice. And they're experiencing it just like you. I don't know about you, but for me, like when I fall short, like I just feel yucky. It's like, dang it. And we have this like emotional response. It's this, this emotional feeling of regret. And regret is the emotion we feel when the Lord disciplines us through his voice. Bear with me. Let me say that again. That regret is the emotion that we feel when the Lord disciplines us through his voice. The discipline of the Lord is the voice that comes immediately after your failure and says, that's not who you are. You didn't have to do that. Wait. This doesn't belong here. It's the voice that says, I made you victorious, not a slave. This is God's voice, which produces the feeling of regret. Notice I said regret and not shame. Regret is not shame. There are two wildly different things. Shame is what occurs when you agree with Satan. Regret is what occurs when you agree with God. If you get nothing else tonight, get this. Regret is what occurs when you agree with Satan. I'm, excuse me, shame is what occurs when you agree with Satan. Regret is what occurs when you agree with God. Regret actually agrees that you're better than that. When God disciplines you through his voice, it's a, you are my chosen, valuable son. It's the recognition of like the prodigal son who went and like was eating out of the pig trough. And the father's like, you are my son. Like, you don't deserve to like, be in those. You're like, you're accepting a lower standard of your life than what I provided for you. 
But shame actually agrees with Satan saying, I'm as bad as I feel. Shame is what happens when you actually agree with Satan that you're a failure, that you'll never get better, that you deserve punishment. But if you're not careful, the devil will allow you to confuse what should be regret and cause you to feel shame. See, regret is not a bad thing. Like, I want my children to feel regret when they disobey. I don't want them to feel shame. Two different outcomes and objectives. I want them to realize that you are my precious Senator. I love you so much. I never want you to feel shame, but I want you to have recognition that you're better than this. You didn't have to do that. And that's why knowing God's heart, knowing Abba is so important is because it prohibits words from being twisted into producing shame. Let me give you a couple examples of the exact same words. One produces regret, and the other version produces shame. Let me give you a couple examples. Regret says, oh, why did you do that, son? Where shame says, why did you do that? Regret says, not who you are. Shame says, that's not who you are. Regret says, you're better than that. Let me show you. Shame says, you're better than that. Do you feel the difference? It's the same exact words, but one has a heart and the other has an objective. See, Satan wants to so dismantle you. If he can convince you to live in shame, you'll repeat your same mistakes, because you never expect anything else for yourself. When you agree with Satan and say, I am this, I'm a, an addict, and we don't put labels on ourselves, when we agree and give ourselves these labels, we are actually cursing ourselves to repeat our same behavior. If you want to break a cycle of addiction in your life, you need to start declaring that you're actually better than that. That's not who you are. If you want to break that cycle, whatever your challenge is, you need to be on the same page as how God sees you not how the enemy sees you. And you notice that the proverb discipline says, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. There's only one reason you'd ever reject the discipline of the Lord, and that's if it's saying something it's not. The Lord doesn't want to partner with the enemy to discipline you. He does not want to partner with, with shame in having you feel like your identity is your struggle. And you'll reject the discipline of the Lord if it, always, if it produces shame. If you want to embrace the discipline of the Lord, you need to know what it sounds like. It sounds like a loving father. So that feeling you get, just like the Hebrews after they fall, it isn't shame of the Lord. It's the result of a transformed creation regretting an encounter with something foreign and hostile to who you are. The Bible says you're an alien and a stranger in this world. You're a brand new creation. It means prototype is literally what it means. When the Bible calls you a, a new creation, it actually means prototype, never seen before. And so when you encounter sin, it's not that God is bringing condemnation. It's just like, this is foreign and hostile to who I am. That yucky feeling you get, it's, it's the Holy Spirit working in you, trying to reverse the effects of what you just experienced. It's the Holy Spirit resisting against the lies that you've just welcomed into your life. It's the Holy Spirit resisting against the spirit in which you've just agreed with. It's the Holy Spirit pressing against the, the taste that your flesh has just encountered. 
It's the Holy Spirit fighting against the desire for you to self-destruct. It's the Holy Spirit rejecting the lie that you're a failure. That's the discipline of the Lord. Is it tells you that you are a son and a daughter, not that you're a loser. All of it. If you want to know, I forgot my sticky note that said talk slowly. If you want an explanation for that feeling you have when you fall short, it's not the Lord trying to inspire shame. It's actually the workings that you are this brand new creation experiencing things that you were never designed to experience. That yucky feeling, it's the Holy Spirit resisting against the lies that have just been welcomed into your life. That feeling is the Holy Spirit resisting against the spirit that you've just come into agreement with. It's the Holy Spirit pressing against the taste that your flesh has just experienced. It's the Holy Spirit resisting against the desire to self-destruct now. It's the Holy Spirit rejecting the lie that you're a failure. Now your mind is being tricked in replace of that to actually feel shame. But that's what that feeling is. It's that I was designed to live righteously. I was designed to be this, this I'm, we're the radiance of glory in the kingdom. My memory verse this past week was 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. When we fail, we encounter sin, we are operating outside how we are designed and what we are made for. So in those moments, it's the discipline of the Lord that teaches, corrects, and instructs us according to who you truly are. He's just saying that what you just did doesn't match who you truly are. Because when you are God's son, he's going to remind you of not what you did wrong, but he's going to remind you of who you are. Like my daughter, she'll apologize like six hours later for something. I don't even know what you're apologizing for. It doesn't matter. You're a son and a daughter of the king, and you're better than any failure you encounter. One other little tiny thing that was found in that proverb says, For whom the Lord he reproves. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. I like the word reprove. Every time you fail, the Lord reproves who you really are. You don't know the discipline of the Lord, it reproves you. It reproves who you are in Christ. You're the righteousness of God. You are clothed with Christ. That's the Father's heart. That's the consequence of getting saved, is that you're going to have a Father who's never going to allow you to come into agreement with an identity that He didn't give you. Now, you can still partner and try to agree with it, but He's going to continually be there reminding you that this isn't who you are. He's going to be trying to re prove to you who you already are in the kingdom. And when we realize this, we realize that we've gotten this whole notion of discipline wrong. That it's actually the discipline of the Lord that in fact picks you up. It's not what kicks you while you're down. We shouldn't be fearful of the discipline of the Lord because if we really know what the discipline of the Lord is, we know it rises us up. It doesn't push us down. It actually reproves who we are. It actually inspires us to be different and to be better. 
to be in his own image. And so the discipline of the Lord is what doesn't set, it doesn't punish you for missing the truth, it tries to realign you to the truth. It shows you that better way. The discipline of the Lord is, says those little voices like me, like, should you really eat that burrito? Are you sure you want to go on that teacup ride? And it's while you're head down on the toilet saying, this was totally avoidable. And so the discipline of the Lord is first and foremost comes through the sound of his voice. Now there is this second aspect, the discipline of the Lord, that's so crazy simple. And it's so transformational for me. And it was so obvious and clear, but I have yet to find people to articulate it in this way. And you know what it is? Can't wait till next week. Love you guys. So what difference does that sermon make? I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit for a minute. What difference does that sermon make in your life? Let's Holy Spirit say unto you. What area of your life does he want to have you look at differently than you've been looking at it? I want to ask you to raise your hand if the Holy Spirit actually gave you something. He might not have. Raise your hand, though, if you, if you feel like he actually gave you something for yourself. Thank you. It's so important, because week after week after week, we have some awesome teaching. It's really easy to hear it and not go away with something that changes as a result of hearing it. Because God is such a great Father. He's always reaching for your heart. And so whenever he gives you what he gave you tonight, which is a really powerful picture of how he looks at you, he wants you to take something away that makes you closer to him. That's really the only purpose besides finding a mate to come to Epic Life. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did I get humorous right there in the middle of everything? <laughs> so I think tonight, I just want to pray over you rather than have uh, prayer and ministry at the front. 
Holy Spirit will always speak to you if you give him a chance to do that. And then you take away what he spoke to you and you let him minister to you more on it and see what he has to say. He's got some good stuff. Stand up. I'm going to pray over you. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, we are going to have an awesome time tomorrow night at DNA. And then I encourage you to put the Christmas party on your schedule. Um, we're not just a group that uh, sits and listens to sermons, but we have some awesome times together as well. So, God, thanks for each person who's here tonight. Thanks for the thing that you wanted to say to every single person. Thank you that you're such an amazing father. You, you do reprove us. You teach us to have regret instead of shame. And you love us like nobody else in the world. So we just love you tonight in return. In Jesus' name, amen.